Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. During the past summer, the Atlanta Shakespeare Company's Shakespeare Intensive for Teens created a production that the artistic director found so inspirational he decided to put it on the main stage and pay the actors as professionals. This weekend at the Shakespeare Tavern, there will be an all-teenage ensemble performing Love's Labor's Lost. Later in the hour, actor Aves Lewis and director Adam King will tell us about the exuberance and present-day insight the young cast brings to this production. First, many justice movements have used music as a powerful way of raising awareness and inspiring participation. This Sunday, a group of renowned Atlanta-based musicians will perform on behalf of the Georgia Justice Project, together with the Kirkwood United Church of Christ. The concert takes place at City Winery's Sunday Gospel Brunch. Two of those outstanding musicians join us now via Zoom. Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls and Kevin Kinney of Driving and Crying. Welcome back to City Light. Thanks for having us. Thank you. The Georgia Justice Project, or GJP as they go by, has been around for 35 years. Amy, Kevin, how did you become aware of services that they provide their clients? I've been hearing about the Justice Project over the years just through different activists that I know and lawyers that do advocacy work. And, you know, it's really well known in the movement of trying to sort of battle the social injustice of mass incarceration. And Chuck, you know, the Blind Bullies of Alabama, Chuck, who's their tour manager, does a lot of projects like this and is super involved. He just uh, called me and said, do you want to do this thing? And I was like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Kevin? 
Well, I actually am just, I'm kind of new to it. I actually just moved back to Atlanta. I've been gone for about 15 years in Brooklyn. So, you know, I've always been a, an advocate for the overreach of incarceration for minor drug offenses and nonviolent things and the ripple effect it has on people's children and people's families, their mothers and their husbands and brothers and how it escalates and is used used against people for moving forward and putting people in places that they shouldn't be for extended periods of time. So I've been uh, aware of this since the early 70s when we had a, a Catholic priest was a part of our my parents' parish. His name is Father Grappi. Everybody should research him. He was really important. Uh, he was excommunicated by the Catholic Church. He walked with Martin Luther King. He was an advocate for housing rights and Indian rights in, in Milwaukee. So he's been kind of a, a hero of mine. Wound up driving a bus. I'm, you know, always happy to contribute whatever I can to in any of these awareness causes like this. So I'm really happy to do this. And, and mentioning that priest, was he excommunicated because of his commitment to social justice or liberal beliefs? I believe so. I think he was just a troublemaker. You know, he wasn't afraid to speak his mind. Um, there's some really great videos of Father Grappi, uh, G-R-O-P-P-I. He was a big mouth, and uh, he was the he was uh, Abby Hoffman of Milwaukee. Kind of, <laughs> and uh, he was a, a really great guy. Wound up, you know, getting excommunicated and then wound up starting a family and uh, and continuing his, his uh, journey, yeah. So faith-based organizations can help expedite the mission of important organizations such as the Georgia Justice Project. Do either of you know about the kind of work the Kirkwood United Church of Christ does to help local communities? They are helping to facilitate this concert. Well, I know the pastor there, Susanna Davis, is just an incredible activist. And she's one of those, you know, great pastors and leaders of a church that makes the church part of the community and they get involved in anything that has to do with advocacy for racial injustice and poverty and all the things that ail us, you know? So I just know of her through knowing her for off and on for a long time. And I know that they're, very much embedded in the community and do a lot of work in the community, serving food. They organize refugee resettlement. They get involved with trans issues. I mean, it's, it runs the gamut, you know, and I think that's what churches, I mean, I, the reason I love activism in the South, one of the reasons so much is because it's often faith-based and it, it takes the, the good part of churches, you know, and really highlights it, that idea of just being part of the community and really enriching the community. And, and that's what a church is for to me, you know, so this is like an example of that, you know, in a really strong way. Very good. Can each of you tell us which songs you'll perform at City Winery Sunday Gospel Brunch? Well, I'm going to do a song that I wrote that's on my new, coming up on a new record. I don't know when it's coming out. It's a song called Half Mast. Each one's for a victim that fell out on the streets, shot with no rhyme or 
reason why I see this flag in flies at half past again I see this clock stop at half past again You know, I'm just driving around this, you know, for the last few years, and the flags seem like they're constantly at half mast. And uh, it was just kind of a, you know, a, an awareness song about uh, how we just kind of take for granted everything, how it how it moves along. And and at the end of the song, there's a kind of a part in there that I really like about, you know, I've been saying for many years, you know, the right to bear arms. But, you know, words are arms. Education is arms. Arms in the 1830s was a, maybe a rifle. Well, I don't know, but I'm an advocate of education and uh, and learning and tolerance. And uh, it mentions a little bit about that in there. And just, you know, keeping your mind open and uh, learning. And uh, your true defense is education and knowledge and understanding. I love that line that we arm ourselves with weapons in response to all threats, forgetting that words are arms when we are at our best. Thank you. (laughs) Great stuff. Amy, do you know what you might be singing at Sunday's Gospel Brunch? Well, I just, uh, for one thing, I'm going to be enjoying listening to Kevin for sure, because he's one of my favorite writers. So it's exciting to hear him talk about a new song. But um, I probably will play a song I I wrote called The Rise of the Black Messiah. Called you the rise of the Black Messiah, like so many boys before you. And there'll be more, more to follow, threatening hard to swallow I was sitting underneath that hanging tree just me and the ghost of the KKK poor man's gallow in the middle of the wood saddest tree that ever stood which is a song I wrote for the Angola Three, um, which were three African-American men incarcerated in Angola, Louisiana, in that prison down there. And they were organizing for better prison conditions and in the, I guess, mid-70s, the late 70s. And there was a riot and a prison guard was killed and they were sort of pinned with that murder. And it's been, it was years and the years and years of untangling that case and a lot of people working on behalf of those three because one of them, Herman Wallace, wrote me a letter and he had been in solitary confinement for 35 years when he wrote me this letter. Because they had been in, incarcerated for, you know, robbery or something, you know, and, and this turned into a thing that became just an awful situation, completely corrupt prison and cruel place. It was run like a plantation. And a lot of legal people worked on their behalf and all three of them were eventually released. But this man had written me a letter about 12 years ago and he's since passed on. He got, he was released because he had cancer and then he died um, a few days later. But 
Herman Wallace was his name. And he, he was one of those really amazing people that worked from within the walls, you know, and worked on behalf of everyone else that was incarcerated and worked against racism and worked against all the suffering in the communities and wrote letters to people and, you know, just did anything he could from his, the confines of his space. And I got a letter from him just basically saying, I'm trying to get people to write songs about this. And so I did, it took me a few years, but I wrote a song just kind of about his, his whole situation, but also what he was working for, you know? And I had read a book by Michelle Alexander called The Last Jim Crow, and that sort of spurred me on to finish the song. And it ended up being something I could do in response to that letter. But, um, but he did pass on, but, but Albert Woodfox, the third man was released a few years ago and is out and talks about it. And it's good to look up Angola three, cause it's really, it's, it's amazing. The prison system and especially, you know, certain ones and how they're run. Angola was actually a plantation and that farm that was the plantation became a prison. So if you can just imagine that, you know, and that's the trajectory, isn't it, of, of what we've done in our country and Jim Crow. And I think it's, it's important, like Kevin said, to learn, you know, and arm yourself with knowledge. And this is why information is important. This is why schools are important and school boards are important. <laughs> so we can all get a, a balance of, of information and, and be able to go out there with it and and engage in our communities and try to make the world a better place. Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls and Kevin Kinney of Driving and Crying. The Sunday Gospel Brunch concert is this Sunday, November 28th, at City Winery and will also feature Michelle Malone, Ricky McKinney of the Blind Boys of Alabama, and Randall Bramblett. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll listen back to my interview with one of the warmest personalities in classical music, violinist Gil Shaham. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. If there is one word that conveys violinist Gil Shaham's 
artistry and personality, its warmth, a meltingly beautiful warm tone from his violin, equally matched by his sweet disposition. When Shaham joined me earlier this year, we spoke about his newest recording with conductor Eric Jacobson and the Brooklyn-based ensemble The Knights. The album features two war horses, the violin concertos of Beethoven and Brahms. Here, Gil Shaham explains why he decided to record these concertos for the first time. You know, it's a good question, and I don't know the answer. I'd been playing this piece for more than 20 years now. Early on, I, I would shy away from performing the Beethoven Violin Concerto. When I started out there, there was this kind of maybe slightly intimidating thing. We all feel so passionately about the Beethoven Violin Concerto. We all love the Beethoven Violin Concerto, myself included, you know. We're all very opinionated about the Beethoven Violin Concerto. And uh, I guess it was only in my late 20s, early 30s that I started performing it uh, two, three hundred years ago. And <laughs> then I discovered what uh, what so many other musicians before and after me had discovered, which is there's there's really no greater joy than to play this music. You know, what, what, a, what a revelation, what a treat, what a, what a miracle of music. How lucky are we to, to have this and to be able to play this? The piece is quirky in the way it opens with four notes from the timpani. Solo, would you guide us through what follows? I love that you use that word quirky. I think that's exactly right. I, I always say, kind of a sports analogy, I, I say he was in the zone. Yes. You know, in 1806, he was hitting one three-pointer after, oh, maybe, what would we say, <laughs> home run after the other. Um, just one timeless masterpiece after the other. The, the violin concerto, the triple concerto, the fourth symphony, the, the third symphony, fourth piano concerto, then I think the cello sonatas are all around the same time. I think maybe cello sonata was a year later, but I think it's, I, anyway, I think that one's interesting because it's the same rhythm as the violin concerto. Yes. And and as you say, yeah, you know, it's, and violin concerto. Some, some similarity. I think it is odd to start a piece with four drum beats you know like there's some precedence with Haydn's symphony but i think there is an element there of beethoven starting four notes on the drums what is this <laughs> it's not even music <laughs> what is it you know
and immediately he turns by contrast to this chorale, this kind of sublime cantabile chorale in the winds. And I, I forget who it was that mentioned that Czerny's metronome marking for the Beethoven Violin Concerto, actually the piano version of Beethoven's Violin Concerto was quarter note equals 126, which is the same metronome marking as the Marseillaise. And I do think there is something about that feeling of a revolutionary march, you know? There are the four drum beats, then the wind band. Yeah, there is a feeling of a slightly military. Oh, Gil, that's fantastic insight. I'd never thought of that. It makes such perfect sense given that Beethoven was this great enlightened thinker and uh, such a deep humanity and equality for all. Yeah, quite revolutionary. I absolutely agree with that. I feel he was a great humanist. What do I know? I'm a violinist. But uh, from what I've read, I believe he was a great humanist. And he was very much in that spirit of, of the Enlightenment and the revolutions of that time. Later, when the strings pick up this music and the violins, they, they repeat the very quickly, like the, like the timpani. It, it maybe sounds even more militaristic. finally the final transformation you know the the rondo melody we hear it and we feel like we've heard it before which of course we have but even within the piece even within the piece we've heard it before and it comes as the most joyous resolution of that initial d major d minor chord and, and we have we hear that Six eight and Gil, even if one can't see you playing this, your sort of irrepressible smile comes through in the music in the rondo here. It's the most joyous piece, you know. I remember as a child, uh, we had a recording at home of David Oistrak playing this. And I used to just listen to it over and over. I, I must have been 10 years old, maybe, maybe younger. I just loved it. It's, uh, these sections where the violin would accompany the orchestra in those beautiful triplets. I used to listen to it over and over again. And then I remember the great Henrik Schering coming. Mm. 
and performing Beethoven Violin Concerto. And I, I was so taken with that performance. I went to every rehearsal, every one of the repeat concerts. This, this is one of those great pieces that really, it changes people's lives. Well, hearing you describe how you were sort of a groupie for the Beethoven Concerto as a kid and as a young adult, it jives with the story in the liner notes about Brahms and how he could not get enough of the Beethoven concerto. Of course, he couldn't listen to it on a recording, but went to hear it as often as he could. And I'm curious because there's always so much thought that goes into your programming and presentation of repertoire about why you chose to pair the Beethoven and Brahms concertos on this recording? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is we love to play both of those pieces. <laughs> that's, that's clear. As you say, it is true. And, you know, the Brahms Violin Concerto is a piece that I believe is autobiographical. Brahms frequently wrote about his experiences and about the people closest to him. And I, and I believe this piece is very much about his friendship with the violinist Josef Joachim. They were lifelong friends and their relationship, really the starting point was an occasion, as you mentioned, when Brahms was 14 years old and he attends a concert in Hamburg where the program is the Beethoven Violin Concerto. You know, and, and it is Josef Joachim playing. You know, they did go on to become lifelong friends. When they began working on Brahms's Violin Concerto, they ended up premiering New Year's Day in Leipzig in 1878. And the program was the Beethoven Violin Concerto and the Brahms Violin Concerto. And here you are. Absolutely, each one of these pieces is a whole universe on its own. For, for us, what happened was I heard the Knights play Beethoven's Third Symphony, the Eroica, and I just thought it was the most remarkable performance. And I went backstage and I said, Eric, why don't we play the Beethoven? Let's play the Beethoven. And we started playing the Beethoven and we started talking. We said, well, why don't we do the Brahms? Oh, well, Gil, we had the pleasure of attending the concert. Mm maybe about five years ago, when you performed with the Knights at Emory. And uh, you seem so ideally suited for one another because here they are, just a brilliant ensemble with amazing technique, and yet they're just having a lot of fun. You know, they impart an absence of pretense and formality that you share. And I know the word electrifying is something that critics often fall back on, but that, that evening was electrifying. Oh, thank you. I do love them. It's like you say, they are masters of music. They, they, they're so accomplished. And what I love about them is that uh, maybe we don't take ourselves so seriously. and We try as much as we can to think outside the box and to have as much fun with our audience and with ourselves as we can, you know? Well, it comes through. 
I did a little preparation before speaking with you today. I have a little story that was related by Yehudi Menuhin, Sir Yehudi Menuhin, in his essay for the bound edition from the Library of Congress of the autograph of Brahms' Violin Concerto. So at the historic premiere by Joachim of Brahms' Violin Concerto on New Year's Day, 1879, Brahms, who was to conduct, appeared at the last minute before his ill-humored Leipzig audience, <laughs> his attire in disarray. The effect of the indecorous informality of his gray street trousers was, in the course of the performance, to be outdone by the unfolding spectacle of those same trousers slipping beyond the point where the most supportive spectators could <laughs> prolong their suspension of disbelief. Brahms had forgotten to fasten them. The concerto ended before the anticipated sartorial denouement, <laughs> but the scandalized Leipzigers had been utterly distracted, and there is no record that they were so much impressed by the newly offered composition as by its author's narrow escape from the consequences of his personal neglect. Who knew? <laughs> sartorial denouement, SMH. <laughs> SMH. <laughs> <laughs> this is what a century before Janet Jackson's um, wardrobe malfunction. A wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I read that as of April 2020, you and your wife, the wonderful violinist Adele Anthony, are members of the Bard College Conservatory of Music. Have you been able to teach in person? There were weeks when people could go in person. This was in the fall. And then it was quickly shut down. Mm. Yeah, but I could not be more proud to be part of that music faculty and part of that school. I'd never done anything like this before in my life. It's it's the most idyllic setting. Yeah. And I'm surrounded by idealistic, brilliant scholars and um, masterful musicians and beautiful artists and very, very special people. Oh, that's great. Okay, whenever we talk 
it's a little bit like retelling the Passover story. I must make you groan and remind you that the first time we met, I believe was 92, and you were performing with the Atlanta Symphony. But you also were signed to perform at Spivey. And yes, you and Akira Aguchi were performing at Spivey Hall. Cheryl Nelson, who was then executive director of the hall, told me that she just had so much fun because you and Akira were enjoying going up and down the glass elevator at the Atlanta Hilton downtown. She had to pick you up because you hadn't gotten your driver's license yet. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay, so I must remind you of that. It's <laughs> My God, it's been almost 30 years, Gil. That's right. Yeah, 30 years. Yeah, thank you for today. Grammy Award-winning violinist Gil Shaham from our interview earlier this year. You can hear that entire conversation on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll learn about the Atlanta Shakespeare Company's first ever all-teenage production on the main stage. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. For the first time in its history, the Atlanta Shakespeare Company will present a play with an all-teenage cast on the main stage, a production of Love's Labor's Lost will be performed at the Shakespeare Tavern over Thanksgiving weekend by members of the Shakespeare Intensive for Teens program. Adam King is the company's education program's producer. He joins us now via Zoom with actor Aves Lewis. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. Thank you. Adam, please tell us about the Shakespeare Intensive for Teens program. Do you call it SIT or SIT for short? Yeah, we call it SIT for short. This is the 15th year that we've been producing SIT. It's an audition-only program for rising high school freshmen all the way through rising college freshmen. So they get one more summer after they graduate high school to come and audition for it. Um, and we usually get around 30 kids each summer split into two sessions, one in June and one in July, where they're working for four weeks, nine to four each day. It truly is an intensive. <laughs> uh, and in the mornings, uh, we're working on monologue work, doing workshops and master classes and stuff like that. And in the afternoon, we rehearse a full-length Shakespeare play that usually in normal years, they get to perform for three nights at the end as a celebratory end of the program. 
Uh, this year, because of COVID restrictions, we were all, they were only able to perform one one night. But this cast in particular uh, really grabbed the attention of our artistic director, Jeffrey Watkins. So they get an encore performance after Thanksgiving. Yeah. What is it about these particular young actors that motivated Jeff Watkins to include the production in the regular professional fall lineup? Sure. And of course, Jeff has seen this play many times, seen so many Shakespeare plays <laughs> for him to uh, feel passionately about bringing it back or this passionately about bringing it back is a special thing. We have just been uh, really lucky to have some of the most talented, capable young people come be gravitated to what we do at the Shakespeare Tavern. We've been building this program, as I said, for 15 years, and a lot of our students will come back every year. We have many students who will do this program, go through this very intensive program for the full four years that they're able to do it. And uh, this cast in particular, I don't know, we had a lot of sort of graduating seniors. I think there was an air of because we weren't able to do normal Shakespeare intensive routines in 2020. So coming back into the theater, being back in the space altogether gave us all a new sort of refreshed view on everything, which was very exciting. And we had a very successful summer as well. We had a wonderful cast in June as well, who did a production of Twelfth Night. And then this cast in July, there was just, they seemed to click as well as any of our SIT casts have up until this point. It's been really exciting to be able to offer them this opportunity to come in and they're getting paid just as a professional company would to come work on our stage, which is just really amazing for them. That is fantastic. Aves, I read that you've worked with the SIT programs for some years now. What is it about Shakespeare's works that made you want to join the program? I've done it for three summers now. I just really connect to Shakespeare's work just because of the way the Shakespeare Tavern does it, because they make it so timeless and they make it connect to the audience and the times that we're doing it in. One of the most fun parts is reading the text with your directors and your castmates and seeing which lines like you can fit and like change to make funny today, like using humor that we would use today and like reading the lines in a different way. It's really exciting. And I really love the in-depth character work that we get to do with each of the characters, yeah. Would you tell us a bit about your character from Love's Labor's Lost? Yes, I'd love to. I play King Ferdinand of Navarre. He is kind of the king in charge of this little group of bros, as it were, that are <laughs> trying to go three years of studying without distractions, like women or anything of the sort. And he is very particular. I made a lot of choices where I would fix my shirt or adjust my crown to show how particular he is. I also through reading the text and like certain line decisions, I feel like he's a very respectful king. He never talks down to anybody in his kingdom, but he's also a bit frazzled, a bit emotional. He falls in love really easily with the princess, something that was really fun to do with my friend Malls, who's playing the princess of France. He's just a guy doing his best. I don't think he's the best king, but he's a, he's a good person. Love's Labor's Lost is a comedy. Would you give us 
a synopsis of the play? Yeah, absolutely. And if I may, one of the things that makes SIT so unique is we don't decide what, what show we're going to produce until we've seen the auditions. We watch what they bring into the room with their monologues and songs and stuff like that. And from that, we sort of figure out what is the best fit for this particular group of young people. Watching their auditions, there was so much fun, silly character work that I was seeing pop out, which really made me want to gravitate towards Love's Labor's Lost. Love's Labor's Lost is the story, as Abe said, about four young noblemen who decide that they were going to study for three years. And to be able to do that, they're going to cut out all distractions, including women. They're not going to allow any women into their court at all. And what do you know, it, the princess of France and her train of <laughs> young women come into their court and uh, disrupt that plan. Along the way, there's a lot of other very goofy characters that we meet who are looking to put on a performance for the, the king and his court, which is something, of course, we see in Shakespeare a lot. Aves, I'm intrigued with what you said about the readings and how meaningful they can be in terms of identifying which parts of the text are especially relevant today or resonate with contemporary issues. Can you give us some examples? This was a very dense, hard play to analyze, just because there is entire sections that are spoken in Latin by one of the characters. I feel like there's a lot of lines that we used for humor, especially because it is a comedy. And one of the lines I'm thinking of is one of Rosalind's lines when she says, when men are thirsty or like fools would fain have drink or something like that. And my friend Tina would say thirsty as in like the common phrase of like wanting to get with someone or being lonely in a relationship sense and just emphasizing certain words that have different meanings today. Just kind of reading the words and seeing them through the lens of today and using that to get an audience that might be confused or not following the really dense language to grab their attention and give them a laugh, something like that. When when I told Jeff Watkins, our artistic director, that uh, we had chosen Love's Labor's Lost to do uh, for this session of SIT, he said, well, that's a bold choice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, challenge accepted, because I really thought we had a group of students that could dig into the very dense humor that's in Love's Labor's Lost. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with the Atlanta Shakespeare Company's education program producer, Adam King, and actor Aves Lewis about their new production of Love's Labor's Lost. Adam, I know Jeff often includes on the programs or in the publicity material that goes out, what he calls the Bardometer, mm -hmm. which is a ranking of the difficulty or accessibility to a general audience, perhaps even a new audience. Where does Love's Labor's Lost come in on the Bardometer? I think it would probably be around a five. 
the jokes are very dense the plot itself is pretty easy to follow overall it's kind of got a, a very sitcom style plot to it that you can easily track from start to finish but there is some very dense language and in particular some dense humor and jokes and wordplay that that's in there for example Don Armato and his page, his young boy page, whose name is Moth, they go off on a whole poetry section. So they're doing this whole little limerick and rhyme section that goes on for uh, almost a full column of Shakespeare. And it's just them playing with the words and uh, bouncing wordplay back and forth. I, I'm not able to quote it at the moment, but just lots of little rhyming poetry stuff where characters are interacting with each other, like a, like a ping pong match, throwing words back and forth at each other. There's also an entire, two characters who love to make themselves laugh through Latin jokes, <laughs> which, uh, very, and very obscure Latin jokes, I believe. And so just sort of embracing uh, the fun that the characters are having can bring that humor, you know, even when it, the jokes can be a little incomprehensible to us in the audience because I don't speak Latin. <laughs> Most <laughs> but don't. But the fun that they have sort of chewing those Latin words in their mouth really then translates into humor for the audience. I remember reading that a few of the cardinals part of the College of Cardinals surrounding the Pope would enjoy telling jokes in Latin or making jokes in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, if only we could understand. And it's a specific kind of nerd who really uh, loves that. <laughs> and that's plus, us. <laughs> when what you were saying about sort of the poetry slam, the Elizabethan poetry slam going down in that part of the play you described is sort of Shakespeare making a little fun of himself or his <laughs> world? Very possibly, very possibly, yeah. Especially because these characters who are having fun with this little section, and I remember it now, it's the fox, the ape, and the humble bee were still at odds, being but three, until the goose came out the door, staying the odds by adding four, right? It's Ooh. this fun little limerick thing that they have fun with. And especially, though, because these characters, uh, at the end of the show, they put on a play. So they are actors, and they really embrace the goofiness of being an actor and putting on a show. So absolutely, I think there's some uh, some fun that Shakespeare might have been having at, at their own expense. Yeah, who said meta was something new? <laughs> exactly. Shakespeare was doing it way back when. Exactly, play within a play within a play. Yeah, <laughs> in the end, there's a beautiful portion that begins... From women's eyes, this doctrine I derive. Would you read that, or do you know it by heart? Um, I have my script right here, if you'd like. I'd love it, Aves. And while Aves is looking for that, I'll say, too, another unique thing about Love's Labor's Lost as an early comedy is it really doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, whereas uh, most other Shakespeare comedies, they all get married, and not to spoil anything, but they all get married in the end. This one does not end that way and there's actually a little hint of tragedy that's brought in at the very last minute of this play that these characters have to sort of process and feel out 
So that's another thing that draws me to Love's Labor's Lost in particular. Adam, where in Shakespeare's output does Love's Labor's Lost fall? It would be very early from my understanding, a similar time frame to Comedy of Errors and some of the early histories he was writing. Please take it away, Aves. From women's eyes, this doctrine I derive. They are the ground, the books, the academes, from whence doth spring the true Promethean fire. Why, universal plotting poisons up the nimble spirits in the arteries, as motion and long-during action tires the sinewy vigor of the traveler. Now, for not looking on a woman's face, you have in that forsworn the use of eyes. And study, too, the causer of your vow, for where is author in the world teaches such beauty as a woman's eye. Other slow arts entirely keep the brain, and therefore finding barren practicers scarce show a harvest of their heavy toil. But love, first learned in a lady's eyes, lives not alone immured in the brain, but with the motion of all elements, courses as swift as thought in every power, and gives to every power a double power, above their functions and their offices. It adds a precious seeing to the eye. A lover's eye will gaze an eagle blind. A lover's ear will hear the lowest sound. Love's feeling is more soft and sensible than are the tender horns of cockled snails. And when love speaks, the voice of all the gods makes heaven drowsy with the harmony. It's not only an ode to love. That feels downright feminist to me, does it to you? I mean, I really like to think that Shakespeare was a feminist. And a, a lot of the text, like he might not have been, but a lot of the text can be reclaimed by the feminist movement because... What I'm found, because I played Lady Macbeth in a past SIT, is I found that almost every woman in Shakespeare is smarter and more cunning and more powerful than a lot of the men. Um, mm -hmm. And especially playing the king this time, like there are so many times that the Princess of France just completely destroys me with her words and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and just is really an amazing character that I had no problem falling in love with. And that was really fun to like go through that like journey of falling in love and then the end, which is so sad where we have to leave each other and vow to come back to each other in a year's time. If we like promise to be faithful, it's really a beautiful show. And one of the ones I really loved seeing on the main stage a couple of years ago and was so excited to be able to do just because not everybody knows about it, but it's pretty much one of my favorite plays. Actor Aves Lewis and the Atlanta Shakespeare Company's education programs producer, Adam King, Love's Labor's Lost, will be on stage at the Shakespeare Tavern Playhouse in Midtown, November 26th and 27th. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylight. Finally, today, Atlanta restaurant owner Derek Hayes of Big Dave's Cheesesteaks has been honored for his generosity during the pandemic. Modern Family star Eric Stone Street partnered with McCormick to present fully stocked, state-of-the-art tiny kitchens to three hometown heroes. During the pandemic, Derek fed frontline workers at 40 hospitals across Metro Atlanta 
and hosted free food happy hours for customers. He also donated $26,000 to several businesses to help keep their doors open during this time. You can nominate the next Atlanta hero that you feel deserves a tiny kitchen and big meal package through the McCormick Flavor Maker app, now through November 30th. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m. Atlanta chef, author, and restaurateur Kevin Gillespie joins us and shares his involvement with Jackson Park Farm. The rooftop garden at Maynard Jackson High School was created to help students learn about cultivating vegetables to sell and feed those in need. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.